We are not makers of history. We are made by history. That's a quote from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. We are not makers of history. We are made by it. Now, add an exclamation point to that statement as we apply it today to the continuation of our discussion on the kingdom because what is held today to be certainty and solid understanding by many of the disciples of Yeshua surrounding the kingdom and what it is and what it's not, much of that is based on history, interpretations passed down for hundreds of approaching thousands of years. Interpretations that go way back. It is based uh, not so much on the biblical text, but more on opinions and attitudes and, and beliefs of the early church, independent of the attitudes and beliefs of what the apostles, the ones who wrote the New Testament, actually thought. So it is an understatement to say that the religious world that surrounds us right now is made by history. It absolutely is. And more pointedly, it is very important, invaluable actually, to know the history of how the, the church or Christianity has lost the kingdom of God along the way. Because, as we've said so many times, it is an integral part of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, of Yeshua HaMashiach. Repent, for the kingdom of God has drawn near. There is a point to all this. I promise you in the end of it, it will be revealed clearly as we go through and as we conclude our elementary principles discussions. As I said last week, if we ever start the elementary principles, we will. There are only six of them. I can't promise you I'll get through them in six. Let's say like 12. How's that? But it's as we've titled the series, which is a little bit confusing, Got Milk. This is milk. And we should be able to digest it and understand it so that we can move on to solid food, so that we can be teachers to those who don't get the milk. And I assure you over the next couple of weeks, I will show you how little milk is gotten in the world. The kingdom is at the center. We talked about it exhaustively last week. So, so how did it get lost? How did it get reimagined, redefined, and here's a hard word to say, replaced? That is our task today, at least on a sort of overview, flyby level, because it would take weeks to go into all of the details. But first of all, I want to, I want to acknowledge uh, the source of a good bit of the quoting and information from this lecture is from, or from this sermon is from a lecture that Daniel Lancaster did on the kingdom. And so I certainly want to acknowledge those who have gone before me and their contributions to Messianic Judaism. But there are a couple of terminology, pieces of terminology we need to know. Premillennial. Who knows what premillennial means? Okay, good. Belief that Yeshua returns to reign for a thousand years before the final judgment and the world to come. 
pre-millennial. Yeshua comes back, reigns for a thousand years before the day of judgment in the world to come. Got it? Pre-millennial. Amillennial. Who knows what that means? You would want to think it means after. But it is a belief that in essence there is no millennium. Or no little literal reign of Messiah in this world. So the first one, premillennial, that's pretty easy to explain. That makes sense. Amillennial, now that takes some splaining. <laughs> As some, I don't remember. We were in Texas. There's a, I don't even remember where the thing comes from. We, I grew up in Texas, part of my life. It's a very large Latin population there. And somewhere or another, down my parents' vocabulary came this idiom. Usually when I would get in trouble, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> Amillennialism says there is no future literal kingdom. Here's what it means. The kingdom age, guess what? You're living in it. It started when Yeshua came back. It started at Shavuot. It started at Pentecost. The kingdom reign began with the church, which didn't actually start on Pentecost. He was speaking only to Jews then, but that's okay. Let's give it that. We'll give it another, we'll give it its proper title at another point. The word is ecclesia, not church. But anyway, the kingdom age then started when Yeshua ascended and everything amazing happened there in Shavuot and the church was built. And you would be surprised, I think, to know what a, how good a percentage of Christianity falls into this amillennial way of believing the kingdom to come. Now this is historical, and I want to keep you awake, but it is incredibly important. Somehow the church lost the kingdom. How is that possible? How is something so incredibly important? How did they lose the main teaching of Yeshua, the message of the kingdom? Here's what happened, following the fathers. And this is where we get historical. It turns out that in the beginning, and I don't mean in the beginning of Genesis, I mean in the beginning of the church fathers, they were all premillennial. You'll know some of these names as I say them. Papias, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Lactanaceus, never heard of him, Hippolytus or Hippolytus, however you want to pronounce it, and others. These are key first century, second century guys, church fathers. What was their belief? Premillennialism. There's going to be a thousand year reign of Messiah on earth. And then, as began to happen historically, Judaism and the emergence of another fork, Christianity. Why? Why? Because followers of Jesus were told, you don't do Passover, that's for Jews. You don't do the Sabbath, that's for Jews. We have another day. You, there was a transition, and those are just two of the main components that you saw in some of the early church councils. Because, why? Why? Because the believing community of Yeshua, Gentiles, were still wanting to celebrate Passover and honor the seventh-day Sabbath, and the, the, the leaders said, no, don't do that. 
And so there is where the departure from the kingdom begins. A replacement began to happen all under that guise of let's get away from Judaism. Origin. Let me see. Let me see. Can I do it? Yes, there he is. Thank you, guys. Anyone ever heard of Origin? Good. Origin is for certain a church father. Origen is a, a pillar of early church theology, foundational teaching. He's a Christian mystic in Alexandria. Here's what his kingdom perspective looked like. This is 184. So this is the, what is that? That's the third, that's the second century. No, that's the third century. 184. It's the second century. I never told you I was good at math or smart for that matter. That's the second century. Here's what Origen said, among other things. Such are the views of those who, while believing in Christ, understand the divine scriptures in a sort of Jewish sense, drawing from them nothing worthy of the divine promises. He goes on. Both Judea and Jerusalem were the shadow and figure of that pure land. Get that. Judea and Jerusalem, that's not real. That's a shadow, right? That's a, of a goodly and large in the pure region of heaven, which is the new Jerusalem. And it's in reference to this Jerusalem that the apostle spoke. For he had found a truth which formed no part of what was the kingdom? Jewish mythology. Okay? Now, as we're looking at this, I want you to remember last week's message about how much Bible I shared with you about the kingdom. Jewish mythology. He goes on, Moreover, there are many prophecies spoken of the people of Israel and Judah which relate to what is going to happen to them. And when we think of the extraordinary promises recorded about these people, is it not clear that they demand an allegorical interpretation? In other words, what Origen is saying is the Bible is full of promises for the Jewish people and then coming into the land and ruling and doing all these other kinds of things. That cannot be possibly be real he says we have to incorporate an allegorical interpretation of the bible because those promises god made to jews no replaced by who origin and the boys What, what was the Jewish error that he spoke of? What was the Jewish error? The Jewish error was the ignorance of believing in an actual physical fulfillment of the prophecies that were associated with the kingdom and the promised land and the Jews. About the Jews returning to the land of Israel and rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding a temple. In other words, Origen's telling us, you can't take any of that literally. I know, but origin, it's the Bible. It doesn't matter. God changed his mind. And why? Why did God change his mind? Well, because it's obvious that God has judged the Jewish people. He's written them out of the story. He's destroyed Israel. He's broken the arrangement, replaced them with the church. And any prophecies that speak of them being restored are not accurate and must be redirected to the church. There's a word for that. Do you know what it's called? Replacement theology. And that lays the foundation and basis for a 
good bit of what modern believers, disciples, understand. Now, as I said last week, it's not really their fault. But there's an easy rebuttal to this, right? There's an easy rebuttal to what he's talking about with no thousand years. The author of the, oh, I didn't put the quote in. Let me read it to you. This is from Revelation. Ready? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so he would not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were completed after these things, he must be released for a short time. That is the millennial age when Satan is bound, Yeshua is ruling and reigning. So that's what Revelation says. Okay? How do we get around this? How did they get around this? It's written right here in black and white. God wrote it down for us. Well, here's what Gaius says. Gaius the Presbyter, church dude, third century. The author of the book of Revelation by means of revelations, which he pretended were written by a great apostle, also falsely invented wondrous things as if they had been shown to him by angels, asserting, and you can read, that there would be an earthly and physical kingdom of Christ in which men, again, inhabiting Jerusalem, will experience physical desires and pleasures, being also an enemy to the divine scriptures, intending to deceive men. He said there would be a space of a thousand years for celebrating wedding banquets. Are you following me on that? You with me? It's a lot of text and reading. What's he saying? He's saying what Dionysus of Alexandria went on to say, just a little stronger. The author of the book of Revelation intentionally affixed the name of John to his own forgery. So Revelation's not real, they say. So anything that's in there about a thousand year reign, you got to throw it out because it's probably some Jew who forged John's identity because John, the good church, John would never have said that. That's their interpretation. But he goes on, and this is important. The guy who did that, who's not only a liar and a deceiver of men, he's also a hedonist and altogether sensual. For he conjectured that the kingdom would consist in those things that he craved for gratifying his own appetite and lust. Namely, there would be eating and drinking and marrying. And he spoke of such things as he supposed these sensual pleasures might be presented in more decent terms. Festivals, sacrifices, and slaying of animal sacrifices. Read that. Now realize, this, this, is, this is included in Eusebius, like, I don't know how many volumes, David, Eusebius, Ecclesiastical History. Thousands of pages, I think. This is in there to say, there's no kingdom of God coming to earth. That's wrong. Don't believe that. So when I tell you it's not their fault, it's not their fault. Today. It's been taught. And here's an interesting note. What you see right there, what you see right there is the emergence of Greek 
Aristotelian, if that's a word, this type of thought that says the world is a disgusting and nasty place. We need to separate ourselves completely from the world. So that's not the Jewish approach to the world. The Jewish approach to the world is that it's beautiful and that we enjoy feasting and festivals. Oh my goodness, we even enjoy procreation and the things that God gave us to enjoy. I mean, I know that's a horrible thought. But what you're seeing here is the departure into the Greek way of thinking, which says there's nothing on this earth that's good for you. So these Jews that are trying to sell you a lie about a wedding feast and drinking and doing all that kind of stuff. They're just, they're just perverts. How could, he, how could the, this lying author of Revelation dare suggest that we would attend a wedding feast of the Lamb? Or that, or that Yeshua would drink wine in the world? Oh wait, he said that. He said, I won't drink it again until I come when my father's kingdom is in place. Oh, wait, I forgot he said that. Let's move on. Jerome, we move to the fifth century. Who knows Jerome? Jerome is very famous. Jerome is the author of the Latin Vulgate or Vulgate. He was pretty connected to Judaism, Jews at least, in the sense that I think Jerome was familiar with Hebrew. I haven't done a huge study on Jerome, but we're now in the fifth century. And we're seeing this theme has had time to gather steam. If one of the Christians reckons that the prophecy of Jerusalem's restoration restoration is not yet completed, let him know that he falsely bears the name of Christ and he has a Jewish soul. Gross. Lacking only the circumcision of the body. He goes on. Belief in a literal kingdom... On earth is Jewish madness. There they go again, as who said it? Oh, Ronald Reagan said that. There you go again. (laughs) Belief in a literal kingdom on earth is Jewish madness. Here's the theme. That theme that Dionysus had brought forth for us about Jews being gluttonous, hedonistic perverts. They just want to satisfy their gluttony for lust and marriage and longing longing for circumcision sacrifices in the Sabbath. So, it's Jewish madness to believe. And lastly, I want to move to the pillar of Christian theology. Who knows St. Augustine? Uh, A thousand-page translated book called The City of God. Anyone read it? Irvin, you've read City of God? Oh my goodness, wow. Huh? Wow. It's a, it's a, it's a pillar text. St. Augustine is a pillar. But he makes it official. He makes it official. Because what Augustine tells us is that the kingdom commenced with the ascension of Christ. And that since then, there have been two cities, two kingdoms on earth that are vying for control of the world. So hear that. 
The kingdom is now, but there's another kingdom on earth. It's the dark and the light, right? But here's what I love. Augustine was once a premillennialist. He believed in a thousand-year thing, a thousand-year kingdom. I myself too once held this opinion, but as they assert that those who then rise again shall enjoy the leisure of immoderate carnal banquets, this theme really sells. Furnished with an amount of meat and drink such as not only to shock the feeling of the temperate, but even to surpass the measure of credulity itself, such assertions can only be believed by the, the carnal. So, If you believe that there's going to be a kingdom full of celebration and joy and Yeshua and, and, and feasting and banquets and all this stuff, I hate to tell you, Andy, you are carnal, sir. That is a transformational consideration. What he tells us is that for certain, they who do believe these things, them, are called by the spiritual kiliasts, thousanders, which we may literally produce by the name millenarians. If it were a tedious process to refute these opinions point by point, we prefer proceeding to show how that passage of Scripture should be understood. Point is, Augustine, ah. I believed that once, but that's hooey. It's wrong. It's not in the Bible. We've changed it. We got a new way of doing it. City of God, kingdoms, church, replacement theology. Now, I'll leave that bit of history behind because there's more. And certainly, any time someone stands before you and makes a presentation of information, we all know that there are three sides to every story, Right? Theirs, theirs, and the truth. Now, I do not claim to be the sole representative of truth and everything that every church father believed about the kingdom because that's not true. And I have put together a representative sample here from Daniel's lecture of church fathers who are pretty well-known guys. And this is what they thought. So let's, let's from, from, um, from Augustine to amillennialist. Augustine is the father of amillennialism. And to get around the kingdom and the inclusion of the Jewish people, one must engage in spiritualizing. He calls it allegory. But here's a great definition for spiritualizing. It's from a guy named T.A. McMahon. Spiritualizing is a process of interpretation that disregards the plain sense of the text in order to ascertain a higher meaning, especially one that reinforces one's doctrinal bias. Now, that has happened a lot. That has grave consequences for teaching the Word of God to people. Um, For example... The prophetic scriptures that refer to Israel have been spiritualized by Amillennius to apply to who? The church, the rightful owners of these promises. But note this. God speaks blessings and curses to Israel in his words, right? Have you ever come across the section of all the curses that, that the church inherited if they don't do certain things? So when it reinforces your doctrinal bias, that also means you get to exclude the very negative things that you don't want to apply to you. That's not fair. 
Israel signed up for the blessings and the curses, and buddy, they've gotten the curses. Amelonius believed the kingdom began at the Ascension or at Pentecost, that the church is the kingdom, and that's the official view since Augustine. It's not a Roman Catholic thing. It's not just Roman Catholic. It includes the Protestant church. Amillennialism, most common eschatological belief among professing Christians. Greek, Russian Orthodox churches, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Church of Christ, Independent Baptists, most Calvinists. Everybody knows John Calvin, right? Here's what John Calvin said about the thousand-year kingdom. Belief in a literal thousand-year kingdom is, quote, a fiction too childish either to need or to be worth refutation. In other words, I'm not even going to talk about it. It's so stupid. But what about today, right? Surely we've moved past this. Surely we're in a better place. Who knows N.T. Wright? Love N.T. Wright. Incredible, incredible scholar. Has done great work for understanding Yeshua, Jewish context, Israel to a degree. 1948, quite a year to be born, I would say, if you're going to talk about the Jewish Jesus, it works. But here's the challenge. N.T. Wright is also, in addition to an incredible theologian, he's also an Anglican bishop. Do you know what Anglicans support in terms of their millennial belief? Amillennialist. N.T. Wright, for all of his goodness, like all of us, has some things that aren't as good, in my opinion. Here's an interesting thing. First of all, what we've established here is that we, we can understand why the kingdom might not be getting much, getting its, its, its just desserts. You ready for the answer? It's too Jewish. It's too Jewish. It's impossible to preach that, if you take a, 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 a literal interpretation of the prophets at their word. This is what the Bible says. There's a kingdom coming and Messiah is going to rule over it. But I mean, listen, it, forget about the prophets. If we just read the words of Yeshua, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Read Matthew 13. Look at all the parables in there. Kingdom, the kingdom can be compared to. It's like one who's in the kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. An astute Bible reader would read that and say, wait a minute, what is that? I don't know what the kingdom is, and why don't I? Where is it? Why don't we hear about that? How could such an important concept be rewritten out of the Bible? Well, I've showed you a little bit of that today. And so N.T. Wright, here's the thing. The apostles asked Yeshua a question in Acts 1.6. It's a great question. We've talked about it. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, is now the time? Please tell us this is the time you're going to make this happen. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And last week we talked about what all of that meant. What were they looking for in the kingdom? If you didn't hear it, listen to last week. Here's what Yeshua said. Yeshua replied, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. That's Acts 1-7. Is now the time, Yeshua? It's not for you to know the time. If, if, according to amillennialism, that was when Yeshua was going to restore the kingdom, that's a really bad answer. 
That's a really sneaky, tricky little answer. Yeshua, just say yes. But that's not what he said. But according to N.T. Wright, he did say yes. Now is the time I'm restoring the kingdom. And here's what N.T. says. I am convinced, and I read you his question, is now that their disciples' question, I'm convinced that Yeshua's answer, Jesus' answer to the question is, yes, but. Yes, I'm doing it. But this is the kingdom being restored to Israel because Israel's Messiah, Jesus, is enthroned as Lord of the world and sends out his messengers into all the world to announce that he is the Lord. And that is what restoring the kingdom is all about. But the kingdom doesn't look like they thought it was. It doesn't look like it would. It doesn't look like a kingdom set up in a present geographical Jerusalem with Jesus and or his followers ruling the world from there. That's all I can do. It doesn't look like a kingdom set up the one they were expecting because it's not. It's not the kingdom. That's not it. It is coming and it will last for a thousand years and Jesus will sit on the throne in Jerusalem ruling over it. That is a that's that answer is much more frustrating than Yeshua's answer. If listen, if if that if this is the kingdom of God, I've said this before, if this is the kingdom of God, I want my money back. <laughs> I do. I'm expecting more. I'm sorry. I might just be a hedonist Jew. I don't know. But this is not what the Bible said we should expect. This isn't the idea that Yeshua gave us what we should expect. How could this possibly be the answer that someone so incredibly educated would give? How did the kingdom get lost? It's pretty big. It's everywhere. I told you last week, it's not like misplacing the car keys. It's a huge thing in the Bible. And I'm sorry to be so predictable here, but how did this happen? I just already told you the secret. It's too Jewish. The early Gentile church squarely based this on the assumption of replacement theology. Replacement theology did a couple of things. One, it nullified the Torah. Two, it canceled Israel's relationship with God. And three, now we know it canceled the kingdom. You with me? Replacement theology. Canceled the Torah, canceled the relationship with Israel that God had promised, still promises, and canceled the kingdom. You want to talk about cancel culture, there it is. Replacement theology teaches the church replaces Israel, but the Bible's prophecies predict a future restoration. So, the problem is, if you believe the first thing that re replacement theology believes, you can't possibly teach a Bible that teaches the other. You can't teach the prophecies of the Bible for the kingdom of God if you believe in replacement theology. And I think I've beaten that horse to death, so let's finish it. This had to happen in order for the church to go its separate way. 
it had to get away from the Jewish underpinnings, the Jewish foundations. And when it did it, it did it in a very nasty way, saying all those things and saying the Bible's revelations written by liars and every other thing under the sun. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But consider the irony here. Our master, our Messiah, Yeshua, came preaching in the synagogue a lot. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, now, but, but you say right there, well, yeah, so that supports the amillennialist view. He said, I'm here, it's now, repent, let's do it. And the church repented. And so doesn't it make sense that, he, yeah, he brought it. He started it. He inaugurated the new covenant with his blood. But the Torah is not written on your heart. Did you sin this week, son? <laughs> That's how I used to start every, every time Zach got home from school. Zach, did you sin today at school, son? No, I didn't. But the point is, we sin because the Torah is not written on our hearts. All the way, the evil inclination has not been vanquished. We still struggle. So Yeshua came and he sent the disciples out, but for most of Christian history, the majority of Jesus' followers have absolutely no idea what the kingdom is and certainly not in the context in which we have painted it, which I stand firmly before you and say is biblical. It's biblical. It's based on the Bible. Which takes us to the something's missing conversation and our conclusion. The amillennialist teaches when Messiah comes, he comes to take the true Christians to heaven. The dead will be raised and taken to heaven with them. There's no kingdom under the replacement theology thing. The kingdom of heaven means heaven in the sky. And therefore, the new gospel message is if Jesus teaching people how to go to heaven. And for most of Christian history, that's what it has been. And so you have to ask yourself, does this matter? Does eschatology really even matter to us? The end times, does this matter? I think it does. Because it's sort of our destination. It's what we're aiming for. It's what we're going for, what we're working for. And that shapes our character and our faith and our path of discipleship. I mean, this is a great reward that's coming to the disciples of Yeshua. It's not fair to take that away from you. But if we have our eschatology wrong, then we have the gospel wrong. And maybe that's why God wanted to lead me down giving you this sermon series, because I don't want any of us to have the gospel wrong, especially when we're sharing it with people who we hope to impact and bring where? Into the kingdom. So, next week, we will have a real and complete final look at the full gospel, the conversion 
so to speak. It's a word that gets thrown around. And the elementary principles will follow very soon after that of repentance and faith, which is where it all starts. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. We're building the kingdom and thankful that you're a part of that mission. If this teaching inspired you, please consider a financial gift to support the work of Shalom Macon. Visit MaconMessianic.com and click Give Online. May the Lord bless and keep you.